As soon as Judas left the room, Jesus said, The time has come for the Son of Man to enter into his glory, and God will be glorified because of him. And since God receives glory because of the Son, he will give his own glory to the Son, and he will do so at once. Dear children, I will be with you only a little longer. And as I told you, the Jewish leaders, you will search for me, but you can't come where I'm going. So now I am giving you a new commandment. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this. Father, thank you that the Son of Man in this passage is about to enter into glory. Thank you that, Father, you give glory to the Son, and as a result, Jesus, you give glory to the Father, and you give us this word, this commandment that radically reorients all of our lives and what does it mean to be God's people. So I pray that as we come before you as your people, as those even seeking you, that you would open our hearts to this, that we may be transformed bit by bit into your image. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So we are in the middle of a series that we're calling Last Supper, Jesus' last words from death row. We're looking for the, up until Easter, we're looking at John chapter 13 through 17 and recognizing the importance of what Jesus is saying, because this is his last meal. This is the last supper, his final instructions to his disciples. And this passage begins what's known as the farewell discourse that takes us up to uh, 16 verse 11. And this has to do with God's glory. But before we go there, last night, uh, we, I had a great opportunity that I, I want to share with you. Uh, I believe, uh, so my oldest son, Judah, just turned 13 in October. And as I've been um, looking at history and I've been looking at different things, I've realized that for boys and girls, uh, there's been a lacking of a coming of age for them. There's been a lacking moment to say, hey, we as the men around you are now welcoming you into a journey that is going to take you to adulthood. And not only am I the father responsible for this, but there's this what I call an order of men. An order is an old religious term that was a called out group of people amongst a larger group. And so this order, I, we had Judah there and I said, Judah, these are the men that you are going to get to understand what it means to be a man because of this group of people. And so before we did that, and I hope that every single one of our kids, as they enter teenage years, they get an opportunity to do something like this. So it includes something fun, like something that Judas always wanted to go shooting. He's never gone shooting before. So we went to the local range and he got to shoot. And uh, there was moments where he was afraid because he was using guns that he was not sure about. And we're not a gun family, really. So this was a new experience for him. So I'm like, I'm learning right there with you, dude. Let's have some fun. So we, we went and did something fun. Then we did something a little bit dangerous, which is a little bit more of an initiation. Especially for boys, it's dangerous to be a man. It's like we, we want to recognize that and, and recognize danger and still be courageous and walk through it. So we brought him to the sound and he did a polar plunge. 
So it was all by himself. He got in his swimsuit and he went out there. And I loved it because he started it. And I said, Judah, you have to go all the way down or it doesn't count. Now, I, he took me a little too seriously. So what he did was he went down, but he missed a part of his face. And so he went down and then he got back up and he went down again. And I was like, I, I asked him, I was like, why did you do it twice? He's like, oh, I missed a part of my face. I didn't want it to not count. I was like, dude, you took me way too literally. But he, so he got up there and then we went up to uh, the Walsh house and we just had a, a bunch of men that just spoke life over him, spoke wisdom over him, shared with him what it means to be a man. It was, it was glory. I was sitting there. I was like, oh, this should be the experience of every single child. Because can you imagine if everybody had a moment like that, how different the world would be? There's a little vision there. I'll leave it there. So we're doing that. And when I get to share, the first thing I do is I, I want to remind him of his identity, who he is. So his name is Judah David Christopher Westcott. It's loaded. I told him last night, I was like, me and your mom knew that you were going to have a horrible time filling out forms the rest of your life <laughs> because it's just awful. There's not going to be enough boxes. You're going to go to the doctor and they're going to be like, what's DC middle initial? Like it's two names because we're ridiculous. So I apologized with him first, but his name is loaded in the sense of it's got a lot of family heritage and biblical heritage. So Darianne's dad's name's David and my dad's name is Christopher. So he has both of the grandfather's names as his middle name to remind him of where he comes from. But his name also is the lineage of the Messiah. I'm a Bible nerd. I had to go there. So Judah is the tribe by which the Messiah would come. David is part of the tribe that through the lineage of David would become the Christ. And Christopher means one who follows Jesus. So loaded name. I don't expect if you have a, if you're pregnant or about to be pregnant, you don't have to have a ridiculous name like that. That's just how we roll. But I wanted to remind them, like you have this heritage that comes. with. I want you to remember who you are, because for the next five to 10 years and honestly, for the rest of your life, you're going to have people that are going to try to tell you who you are. But it's not really true about who you really are. You're going to have people that are trying to tell you what it means to be a man. But that's not what it means because Jesus is the picture of what it means to be a man. Not culture or even not other Christians. It's Jesus that's the picture. And I wanted to remind him of his identity. In essence, what I was doing is I was trying to reveal his glory. Now, let me unpack that for a second. What I'm not saying is he is the most glorious one. But he, there is something that is most true about him. There is something that he is uniquely, and all of us, and every single one of us, uniquely are designed to reflect God in a specific and certain way. And that is the glory of man, if I could say it that way. Why do I go there? Because as we dive into this text... This is talking about glory. And oftentimes when we think of glory, it's one of those Christianese terms that's just tossed around that we don't even know what it means. Like glorify God. What's that mean? Like I come from outside of the Christian faith. I was not raised in the church. I have no Christian heritage. My family, I don't remember a single conversation about God ever in my household. And so I had to learn all this lingo when I came into the faith, like glorify. What does it mean to glorify God? What is the glory of Jesus? 
And so as I have come to discover, it's not just like what some people say, like glorious. Like, have you ever heard somebody that's instead of saying cool or awesome, like, man, that's glory. That's glorious. It's not just this pejorative. The glory, what glory is, is it is what is most true about something or someone. That is its glory. Okay? So in Hebrew, the Old Testament language, it's meant weighty. In the Gospel of John, which we're in, theologian Richard Bauckham helps us see the glory of God as, quote, his visible splendor. So if you want to know what is most true, you're asking what is the glory of that person. Therefore, to glorify is to speak about what is most true about that thing or that person. It's saying this is true, this is right, I am going in alignment what, with what I know to be true about person. It's the whole truth. It's the identity, the character, the revelation of the splendor and character of the one you speak of. That's what glory is of something. And so in this passage, Jesus says this amazing thing. He says, the time has come for the Son of Man to enter into his glory and God will be glorified because of him. So what he's saying is, I'm about to reveal what is most true about me. I'm, and by revealing what is most true about me, I'm also going to tell the whole world what is most true and the identity and character of God, what that is like. So the question is, how does Jesus do this? Where is the glory of Jesus most revealed? Is it when he's teaching the massive crowds about the kingdom of God? Well, no, because he's already been doing that. He's about to enter into his glory. Is he, is he, does he reveal his true nature when he is telling people, or excuse me, when he's healing the sick, caring for the poor, speaking truth to injustice? Where does Jesus reveal the full, the best expression of what he and what God the Father are like? Because remember, Colossians 1, Jesus is the image of the invisible. Hebrews 1 says that Jesus is the exact imprint of the Father. So when we see Jesus' glory, we see the Father's glory. So where in the life of Jesus do we see him as the best expression of what God is like? It is the cross. Richard Bauckham says this. The cross is the supreme enactment of God's love and the supreme revelation of his glory, of who he is. What Moses heard about God's glory is seen in Jesus' path of suffering and death. If you want to know what the Christian God is like, the one place that you look to is him hanging on a cross, bearing the shame and weight of our sin. Feel that for a second. It's not him sitting at this table, eating a meal. It's not him healing people, although that does reveal God's glory a bit. But the best expression, what fully glorifies God, what fully reveals the nature of what God is like, when he is sacrificially hanging on the cross 
in our place for our sins. Taking on what we deserved. Paying the penalty that you and I deserve to pay. I mean, we like to, when we see sculptures or paintings, we, we see like a glimpse of it. But Jesus, I mean, I'm going to get vulgar, if you will, for a second. Jesus is hanging there naked, completely whipped, completely bloodied, completely exposed. This was the moment where shame itself was fully realized. And the Bible is, and Jesus himself is so preposterous and scandalous to say, that's when I get to show my glory. That's when I get to show what God is like. That is what it means to walk in my image, in the sacrifice and love. I mean, there is no way a human made this up. There is no way that a group of uneducated Jewish people 2,000 years ago could have thought up something so scandalous. Like there was no Hollywood. There's no like, oh yeah, like I've seen this movie before. I bet we can make it working into that. None of that. God's character is revealed in his utter humiliation and shame he bore on the cross for you. Because that's his fullest expression of love for you. Don't miss these two. When is God most glorified? When he reveals his character. What does John 1, 4, 8 say? God is love. So what reveals God's love most to you is Jesus on the cross. You could say it this way. Jesus is glorified when he's sitting on his throne. The cross is the throne of God. Talk about upside down. It's not Game of Thrones where you got like all the skeletons or whatever. I don't know what that was. It's not a golden one, right? It's not all this magnificence, beauty. The throne of Jesus is a cross. And what he's saying is what I'm about to do for you and what you're about to witness is the ultimate standard of what it means to love one another. It's the ultimate standard of my character. It's what it means to be like me. It's what I am like. And then he goes on to say, verse 34, and he says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Knowing what's about to happen, Jesus is preparing his disciples to know what his glory is and how they can bring his glory to others. So verse 34, he's talking about this new commandment. Now, it's not entirely new as of all out of nowhere, because in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew scriptures, there are uh, commandments that summarize the law. Uh, Deuteronomy 6, 5, love God with all your heart, soul and strength. Leviticus 19, 18, love your neighbor as yourself. So the command to love one another is not lacking in the scriptures. So how is this new? How is this different from that? Well, he goes on to say what? It, the uh, Excuse me. I'm the new commandment is you love each other just as I have loved you. So where God's glory is revealed, where God's love is revealed, how God expresses his love to us and these 11 men here, 
is the way that we are to express our love to each other. So it's not a new commandment altogether. It's now a new standard. If Jesus loves this way, he's telling the disciples, I want you to love this way now. Now, I think it's important. Jesus here is speaking to a specific group of people. Let's not overstep them, because I think the scandal of what Jesus is doing is in part of the context of who he's speaking to. So verse 31, let's go back for a second. It just says that Judas has left the room. Now, Judas was the one that betrayed Jesus. He now kind of initiates the mechanism that leads to his betrayal and arrest. And with Jesus, there are 11 other disciples in the room. Initially, there were 12 and now there are 11. Now, who are these people in the room? Who, what is, what, who is he actually telling? Who is the first audience that he's telling one another? And what does that tell us? So Luke 6, 14 through 16. I'm just going to, this tells us who the disciples are. Let me just read this for a moment. Here they are. They said, Simon, who, named, who is named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called a celibate, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who, is, who has become a traitor. Okay, 12 guys. Remember, Judas is down, so now there's 11. What do we know about these 11 people? Let me just highlight a few things. So, Peter is a loud mouth. He's the um, fire-ready aim. He just says it, and then he's like, I probably shouldn't have said that. Foot and mouth guy. Maybe there's somebody here that's like that. Like, oh, I'm saying something and I don't want to say it. Please. Oh, it's gone. That may be you. Okay. That's Peter. He leads to betray Jesus, which we'll look at in the next couple weeks. He has a brother, Andrew, who was the first to see Jesus. And Andrew invited Peter to follow Jesus. So imagine the, the sibling rivalry that's going on there. One brother sees Jesus first. And then all of a sudden, Peter's on the inner circle. It's like, wait a second. I'm the one that told you about it. Right? Sibling rivalry. Well, there's another set of brothers, James and John. Now, these brothers, at one point, they send their mom to Jesus to ask the, Jesus to promote these sons to a place of honor. Now, imagine being the other 10 guys and these brothers send their mom. Really? Like, we're in college, bro. You don't send your mom to the admissions office. Like, what are you doing? Scripture says they were indignant. So imagine the, the internal rivalries that are happening here. It goes on. Matthew, also known Levi, is a foreman, former Roman tax collector. He worked for the bad guy. He was a traitor. Simon the Zealot, he was part of a political group that regularly tried to kill Roman officials. So you can imagine they probably didn't share a bunk very often. Right? They probably didn't share the same tent. They didn't have bunks. But you know what I mean? So you have sibling rivalry. You have one guy who's a traitor with another guy who's part of a political group that's readily known for having these small knives that would just go in public and just stab people and kill them. This is the group of people that Jesus is literally saying, love one another just as I have loved you. This ragtag group of disciples, this to whom he was speaking, had every human reason to be at odds with one another. And what does Jesus tell them to do? 
love one another. They, the only thing that they have in common is their hope in Jesus. They have different motivations and desires. They have different struggles, and yet Jesus is what binds them together. They come from different political backgrounds and have different understandings of how the people of God should engage with the empire of the day. And yet Jesus' command to those political opposites, love one another. They come from different economic backgrounds, business owners and tax collectors, wealthy and poor. What is Jesus' commands across the economic lines? Love one another as I have loved you. And the same thing that Jesus spoke to this ragtag group of 11 is the same thing he speaks to us as God's people right now. The, the church grew out of these 11 men. And it, as it moves on, that economic difference, that ethnic difference, that racial difference, that political difference, all of that gets more pronounced. And then, the, But the church is to be, it literally is to be the example of what God's love looks like in the world. Luke is specific about the church in Antioch, people from all over the world, Africa, Asia, Europe, Israel. The church is to come from every tribe, tongue, and nation, bound not with the external things that keep them together, but with Jesus at the center of it all. And the commandment for them is to love one another. Brothers and sisters, you loving as a family is how we are called to glorify Jesus and tell the truth about him. Your relationships with one another, within your MC, within the church family, it tells one another what God is like. So the question is, do our relationships tell the truth? Because our actions are speaking something. If it's in alignment with the character of God, we are telling the truth. But if it's out of line with how God revealed his glory in the sacrificial death on the cross, we are telling a lie to each other about what the world, what Jesus is like. If we can't get along, are we saying that God is not united? When we're stingy and not generous, are we saying that God is not benevolent? If people gossip behind each other's back and speak of them instead of to them, are we saying that God doesn't have words of love for us? You see, we live in a day where it's not uncommon to hear that people love Jesus but don't love the church. Where relationships within the body of Christ are seen as unimportant. Many say that they can be a Christian and not part of the church, or they say they can, quote, walk in, get fed, and then walk out. Show up, get what I need, and then peace out. This is, this is an arm's length type of relationship that is normal in our day. And honestly... For a lot of people, I get it because they've been hurt by that closer relationships because the closer you get to somebody, the more vulnerable you are with somebody, the easier it is for them to use that against you. 
And the second that that goes south, you're like, "Uh uh-uh, I'm not doing that again. Why in the world if I open myself up and then they use that against me, would I ever want to open myself up again? Or they, if that's, if it's not just vulnerable relationships or they've seen or heard or read news things about those that are in power, abusing their power for the sake of their own benefit rather than the sake of building up the body of Christ. So if I were to look at what the church is like on Twitter or on any social media, you better believe I wouldn't want to, I wouldn't want to be part of that. Why? Because it's not showcasing the love that Jesus has for us in the sacrificial death on the cross. It's like, oh, I'll love you at arm's length. I'll keep my distance from you. I'll I'll protect myself. Whatever it may be. Oh, I'm too busy to sacrifice my desires for the desire of the other. I get it. This is an... But that's not the picture of what the church is called to be. The picture of the church, the way in which the church is called to love one another is the example of Jesus. Sacrificial. Laying down our lives. Seeking the betterment of the other. Jesus even himself not seeking his own glory. But the son giving glory to the father. Like I'm deferring what's true for me, but I want you to tell you about what God is like. And guess what happens as the result? The father glorifies the son. Do you see that? When we say, ah, it's not about me. It's about him. Guess what? You get what you've been wanting for, wanting in the beginning. This is the closeness of relationship. And so our lives The love for the family of God is how Jesus is glorified on the earth. This is why Paul in his letters spends so much time doing what are called the one another passages. These are commands that he encourages them to do. So I'm going to machine gun it. You ready? These are the different ways he one another. So just fill in one another after each of these. Love. Be devoted honor, live in harmony, build up, be like-minded, accept, admonish, greet, care, serve, bear one another's burdens, forgive, be patient with, be compassionate and kind, sing to one another. There you go. You ready for that one? Here you go. Submit to one another. Consider others better than yourselves. Look to the interest of. Bear with one another. Teach one another. Comfort. Encourage. Exhort. Stir up or provoke or stimulate. Show hospitality. Employ the gifts of. Clothe yourselves with humility. Confess your faults to one another. How's that going? That's a big list, right? Like, What is Paul doing? He's saying all these things All these one another's are how you glorify Jesus amongst you. Did you ever think that you're glorifying Jesus when you get so close to somebody that they unintentionally or intentionally hurt you and you now have to forgive them? That is glorifying Jesus. Not just singing and raising our hands, although that does as well. But it's when you forgive one another, when you see somebody discouraged and in the dumps and when you come alongside of them on a Sunday morning and they're getting coffee 
And you're like, oh, you pass the cream and you see them and the spirit stirs something in you like, hey, they need to be encouraged. And you just encourage them on the spot in the moment. Do you realize that that is Jesus glorified in our midst? I'll go on. Do you think that when you are clothing yourselves with humility towards one another, when you're saying, I'm going to think of others as more important than myself as Philippians 2. When I do that, that brings Jesus glory. Now imagine, that's like, well, that's not that big of a deal. Not many people see that. That's a small thing. Imagine if every single one of us made our whole lives oriented around that. How much Jesus will be glorified in our midst. Every single one of these to count. To honor, to live in harmony, to build up, to greet. It's not greet with the holy uh, holy kiss. We're going to skip that one. We're just going to greet one another, okay? Speak the truth. Be patient with one another. How many times are you in your missional community, your DNA, like, gosh, how many times have I told you this? And all of a sudden, it's like, oh, a year later, it just clicks. Be patient with one another. Why? That's Jesus glorified. That is what tells one another the true nature of what God is like. I don't have time to go into this, but marriages, your relationship does this as well. The unity of your relationship is to emulate and express the unity of Jesus's love for the church. The great mystery of Ephesians 5 verse 32 Uh, But it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one is the way that husband and wife, you are one. So not just our church relationships, but for those of you that are married, is your marriage relationship one that's telling each other about what is true about God? Are you loving, greeting, caring, bearing, forgiving, being patient, singing, submitting, considering, looking at the interests of the other? Why? Because this is a new command I give you. As I have done, love one another. The gospel is what Jesus came to give us so that we would actually live out. And this goes beyond our relationships within the church and telling one another the truth. Because verse 35 is super important. It says this, by this, by what? By loving one another as Jesus has told us to love. By this, all people will know you are my disciples. By your love for one another. Think about that for a second. The whole world, the way that our discipleship, who we are an apprentice to, where we get our identity... Where, or if somebody were to point at your life, where would they say they can tell that you're a disciple? Is it by what you say? Like, oh, I'm a disciple because I talk the talk. Okay, that's not what Jesus is saying here. How will the lost know that we are God's, we are Jesus' disciples? Because they see the love of Christ in, at work amongst his people. We, we like to call this the, the, the apologetic of the gospel. When we think about evangelism, 
We often think about what needs to be said. And don't get me wrong, super important, really impactful, okay? But when we think of apologetics, oftentimes apologetics is making a case or an argument about why, um, for why we believe in Jesus, okay? So what if the apologetic of the gospel, the greatest defense of the gospel, the greatest way to tell the world that we believe in Jesus is not in any arguments that we can muster up, but we can say, look at how we love one another in the people of God. What if that is the way that Jesus designed the world to know that he is Lord? What is the best defense of the gospel? It's our love, not our words, not our reasoned arguments. It's the love of the church for one another. The relationships within the church proclaim the truth about God to the lost world. Now, this goes beyond shared interests and commonalities. You can see many places where like, the idea of getting along with one another work. You go online with Discord or Twitch communities. You go to the local dive bar. They get along with one another. Cool. But this community that God calls the church takes it a step further. And it's not just a community of getting along around shared interests. It's a community of love. This is the heritage that we as a church have for centuries Third century church father Tertullian wrote this. It is mainly the deeds of a love so noble that lead many to put a brand upon us. See, they say, how they love one another. See how they are ready even to die for one another. At, some, at the third century, when the church was under persecution and under this most rapid expansion that it's ever been to up to this point because we're actually in the greatest revival the world has ever seen, just not in America. We have a lot to learn from our brothers and sisters overseas. I'll leave that there. What he would say is, how do the other people know? Because they see the love that the church has for one another. So if you and I like to have the tendency to keep arm's length with one another in relationship, like I can't do that. What? This passage is calling us to is not just building deep relationships with one another within the church family, but doing so in a way that those that are not yet part of the faith are also part of so that they can have an intimate expression and seeing of it. How are the lost to know Jesus is risen from the dead? Because you love one another. Because you act as family. Because you forgive. That is how it's done. The world needs to be exposed to the love of the family of God if they are to believe in the love that God has for them. It has to be embodied. It has to be known. And I believe it happens best at the dinner table. Rows are great. Don't get me wrong. But you want to know where it really happens? Invite people over to dinner. See, let them see your kids disobey in their own space. Because kids have the tendency to do that more regularly, right? They can act in other locations. Hey, this is somebody else's house. You act, act right. They get home, that mask is gone. <laughs> have somebody over that doesn't know Jesus as your kids crawling under the table telling them that they have to take one more bite because they have to take one more bite because they haven't eaten anything. 
And you do that with a few other families that also don't know Jesus. And they see your kids are doing, oh, Mike, I'm like that too. Oh, okay. And then, oh, wait, but they help one another and they care for one. And the relationship, embodied relationship that happens in the family of God, all of a sudden, it's like, wait a second, what's going on here? What, what, is, what is this? This is, wait, like you're watching each other's kids because you need a weekend away? Why in the world would you do that? That's going to get in the way of your brunch and NFL plans. Well, yeah, because this is, see what's happening? And I will say, so I think we do a good job of this. I want to close with a good story. This is uh, just a story. I hope it's a good one. It's not some pie in the sky theology. Um, This is immensely practical and it's happening in us. Uh, Many of you know, we recently uh, lost a friend who was part of our church for years. She was baptized in one of our MCs at her apartment complex after a few families shared the gospel with her. Um, she began to lose contact for a variety of reasons after several years. Um, later, she went on to have a, a new baby with this new boyfriend. And recently, she, had, uh, she passed away. Now, when she passed, there was sadly little contact about what was going on in her life. Just because for many reasons, there's just minimal relationships. But there was also um, her boyfriend and this child also had minimal relationships with the church. Um, and, and they were desperately in need of help. And this is where the church really stepped up. And this is a practical outworking of this. Many people spent countless hours, I mean, countless hours helping this person pack and move. Multiple groups from different communities put on two different memorials for the family. And at one point, the boyfriend um, showed up to one of our gatherings and began to ask some questions about stuff. And so um, uh, I, I took it upon myself to like, okay, I, I want to reach out and, and meet this person. Let me just tell you, this was the easiest way I've ever had to share the gospel with anybody. It's easy. Like butter. I hope you like butter. Awesome. Because this is how it went. It was literally like, hey, tell me what you're experiencing right now. Well, this person's doing this. Like, and I literally just asked the question, why in the world are they doing that for you? Like, what? Like, why? And he was like, you know, I, I have no idea. Beautiful opportunity. Because all I have to say, they're loving you as Jesus loved them. Now, this is somebody that doesn't yet believe. But what's happening to the family of God? They're treating people that are lost like the family of God so that when they become the family of God, they know what it's like and what to do. You're discipling people the moment of relationship, not the moment of conversion. So simple. Why, do they, why are, you, are you doing this? Well, it's because Jesus did this for them. Like, yeah, like it's different. Like, I was like, what's different about this group of people than these other groups of people? And he goes on to say, well, these other groups of people, if I do something wrong, they judge me and I kind of get kicked out. Like I'm, I'm, I, you, you make one mistake and you're no longer part of the group of people anymore. And I'm like, okay, how's that different over here? I'm like, these people, the church, they don't judge me. They accept me as I am. They, 
They know that things aren't going well in my life. And yet they still show up and love and care and serve. And this person got enough of an experience inside the family of God to be able to get an exp- uh, be exposed to the gospel of God. Easiest time I've ever had. Now, it was short and, and I don't, it's my delivery is, or all of our delivery does not determine if somebody comes to faith. That's the Spirit's job. But it's like this close. And what, is that, what does that need? Just needs more exposure to the family of God. Needs more of the apologetic of the gospel. Needs more of an expression of what the gospel is. Because if I can say, look at our lives... And what's different about our lives? And then 1 Peter 3.15, I'm prepared to give a defense of the hope that we have in Christ. I can easily say, oh, we do this because Jesus already did it for me. And that's what he's also done for you. We glorify God. We tell the truth about God, what he's like when we live out this command to love one another, to bear one another's burdens, to forgive one another. So my question is, which of these are you struggling to live out right now? Do you maybe want to keep everybody else at arm's length? That's, that's your safe space. The idea of doing these things, this long list for one another, submitting to one another, considering one another better, looking out to the interest of other. Like, mm, yeah, that's just a little too much for me. Is that where you're at? Maybe you're like, you know what? I've done some of these things and it has not turned out well. Like, that's like, I'm afraid of doing that again. Maybe you're like, you know what? I thought just sharing the gospel was coming to listen to a guy like this talk. But I didn't realize that every moment of every day of my life is the means by which Jesus is glorified. Every single moment, every single day in relationship to one another is an opportunity for God's glory to be experienced and known on this earth, embodied just like when Jesus did it when he was here. The body of Christ at work. I don't know what your struggle is. I don't know where that is. But this is what I do know. Jesus' death on the cross is this place where his glory was displayed. That is the standard by which we call one another to live. Where we need the spirit of God to help us. Where Jesus didn't stay at arm's length, he actually took on human flesh and dwelt among us, right? He perfectly lived in the way that you and I should have lived. He loved the disciples, those ragtag group of people. He loved them when they were unlovable. I mean, thankfully, it shows his humanity that he got annoyed with them sometimes. He's like, gosh, how much longer am I going to have to put up with you guys? Thank you. Like, I feel that sometimes. Right? But he showed that to them. He was denied by them. He was betrayed by them. He was stabbed in the back by some of them. Stabbed in the side by other people. And his love, but what carried him through that? He was trying to tell the truth about what God is like. He was trying to glorify God. And he knew the best way to do that was to share his love for you and me on the cross. So when we don't live up to this, God comes, Jesus comes and says, you know what? My grace forgives that. 
Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't do this very well. Awesome. You need God's grace. I, you may not even believe any of this stuff. That's okay. You need God's grace. All of us need to not look away from the cross, but we need to look to the cross again. We need to be reminded that, in, that his body was broken for you and me. His blood was shed for the forgiveness of my sin. He took on the death that we deserved, all of us that we deserved. And then three days later, he rose again. He defeated death itself. And why? Because he was showing what God was like. He was glorifying God and he was giving us an example and a power that you and I need to live out. And that's why we go to the table. That's why we remind one another every week of the, of the cross. That's why we remind one another of the table that we go and the, bo- the bread symbolizes his body broken. The, the juice or the wine symbolizes his blood uh, shed for the forgiveness of our sins. And so if you have professed faith for the thousandth time or if you're doing it today for the first time, this is your way of saying... I believe the truth about what Jesus is like, about what he revealed. I believe this is true of him, that he died, he rose again, and one day he will return. I believe this to be true. And you know what? It may sound too good to be true, and this is the only story that is. Why would God die? Well, what glorifies him? His love for you and me. And so that's why we go to the table, to receive the love of God.